without further ado, um, I've actually been waiting for this interview for a while. Um, uh, the uh, this this gentleman I've had the privilege with for knowing for uh, uh, um, almost a decade. Um, uh, the which is insane. Um, I worked with him on one of his films back in 2010, and we'll we'll get to that in just a second. He is the founder of Scotch Worthy Productions. Um, uh, if the uh, the film is uh, the, there's a whole story behind that, but I'll let him tell. This is Mr. Tony Wash. Thank you, Tony, so much, man, for being with us. We really appreciate you um, uh, coming on the show and uh, and and chatting about horror movies for for a little bit. Hey, I'm I'm very grateful for being on the show and that you guys are excited to talk to me about everything if it wasn't for people like you we wouldn't be able to promote our stuff you know and, and no i appreciate i mean that's that's one of the biggest things we're doing is just trying to get a community together uh, and work and uh, and you have definitely been in the community since like 2007 and even before then um uh, so um obviously one of the biggest segments we have on on this show is um uh, is is talking about uh you know what what drives you? What what makes you passionate? You know, why do you do what you do? That's our biggest segment. So I would love to, you know, where did this adventure start for you? You know, uh, starting to make films and fall in love with horror. You know, when, uh, you know, where did this all start for you? Um, was there any movies, TV shows? You know, where did this whole thing kick off? Well, first of all, I got to ask, Brandon, is that a zombie T-shirt? It is. That's pretty badass. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See, Tony likes it. I, I, I well, you're not wearing your TerraVision shirt. That's why he likes oh, it. Okay. That ass too. I would love a TerraVision shirt. <laughs> I feel oh. validated. Oh, I, I will love. never get that hour and a half back of my life. Nope, none oh. of us will. Stop it. Stop oh. it. Is a I, I, I'm set. We can end the interview right here. I, 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 no. <laughs> I, you know what? I came into TerraVision with so much confidence after watching Society and Night of the Creeps. And it was like, this is going to be a crazy experience. And it wasn't. It was bad. We didn't even get a reaction out of West. It was that boring. I mean, you know, and, and I I mean, I went on a 15-minute rant about society. You know, I don't have anything to say about TerraVision at all. I, I really did not care much for society. And I never saw it as a younger person. Um, I finally watched it, I think, last year for the first time. And I really didn't care for it. Um, it had some cool visual effects work in it and stuff. But... But Terrorvision is just, it's, it's part of my childhood. It's one of the horror films that I grew up on. I remember watching it as a kid on television all the time. So it was probably edited to a degree, but just probably. the <laughs> and everything were so great. And there's just so many funny parts in that movie that you can't take it seriously. And if you go into it wanting to have a good time, I think it's just one of those movies, you know? So <laughs> tangent, major tangent. Um, then, um, yeah, Tony, you're going to figure out real quick that we go down some, some down some rabbit holes in this show. Um, uh, two of the constant jokes that you'll hear on this show is the um, uh, talking about society, um, uh, talking about American Psycho, and then also talking about uh, Maximum Overdrive. But more specific, the trailer. More specifically, the trailer of Maximum Overdrive and how high Stephen King was on coke during that trailer. 80s coke. A, a, no, more specifically, 80s Scarface coke. Very specific kind of cocaine. I mean, the, I uh, feel like cocaine is the reason why a majority of the films 
made in the 1980s. And <laughs> not going to disagree with him. No, 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 not, not going to disagree whatsoever. Maybe that's why we don't get that many good movies anymore. Not enough cocaine, I yeah. guess. I don't know. Let's, the, let's hand it to all the Disney executives. Let's see what happens. You, oh God, they have it. Trust me. They, they, they do have a bunch of cocaine. You know, the, uh, so. Do they have the real cocaine? Hi guys, you have uh, some, uh, you know, cocaine up here. Oh, oh boy! <laughs> the uh, it's some Adderall going, so you know you may not be, or, or some five-hour energy drinks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the, the that's the the twenty, you know, the new uh, version of cocaine. Yeah, you know, just combined, you know, five-hour energy with bang energy drink, and then you have your cocaine for for the day. Sure, sure. Right. Um, the so yeah, I've. Trust me, I'm I'm a I'm the tangent king too. So this this will probably be a long podcast. Um, but regarding your question, uh, I've always been a fan of the horror genre. I don't even know when it began because I was so young that I don't really remember. Um, as a kid, I remember going to like the Scholastic Book Days at, at elementary school, and you know I would have five bucks from my mom, and I would always get stuff like the scary stories to tell in the dark. And, you know, then I started getting into R.L. Stein. And this is R.L. Stein pre-Goosebumps. This is R.L. Stein when he was just doing individual books. Um, I think he had a series called Fear Street. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, I, I read a bunch of that stuff. And then when I was, I think I was 12 years old, and my dad let me read needful things. And that was the first Stephen King book I read, which is a really shitty Stephen King book to start out your Stephen <laughs> King with. Um, and, and so then from there, I just, I don't know why I, I enjoyed it so much because I really didn't like that book. But I think it was just more the thought of reading these adult horror books that I started going down that path. And all the while at the same time, I was slowly building my my catalog of of horror films that i've that i'd watched and that i was able to watch or that i snuck you know in and watched either at a friend's house or um somehow or another without my mother finding out um and you know it, it was at first my, my parents had vhs tapes with you know two or three movies on them from tv that they had taped off a cable and it was the black and white horror movies like Frankenstein and, and the Wolfman was one that I watched a million times. And then as I got a little bit older, you know, six, seven years old, then I was watching um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. I started getting into the Friday the 13th. Uh, I used to go to my aunt's house and watch House all the time. Um, my other aunt showed me Child's Play when I was, my brother was a lot, he's two years younger than me and he was way too young to watch Child's Play. Um, my mother was upset with my aunt for that um you know so it was a lot of those movies i remember being at my dad's friend's house for dinner and while we were eating dinner my dad's friend was like you know i rented a really cool movie and if you guys want to watch it when we're done eating we can do it and you know he told my mom that it had a little bit of violence in it and you know a little bit of sexual situations but it wasn't really that terrible for a kid to watch and it was fright night and that <laughs> That's a bait and switch if I've ever heard of one. Yeah, well, I mean, Fright Night really isn't that bad, especially considering no. the fact that, like, my one of my best friends, Jason Kane, who does all the special effects on my movies, um, and, and the first thing we worked on together was A Chance in Hell, what Mark and I worked on. Um, 
Jason's son is five years old, Corbin. His name is Corbin Dallas. Um, and, uh, and he's my godson, and he's five years old, and he has watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre a hundred times. And he loves Leatherface. He loves Pennywise. And so, you know, I think there's, there's kids that get introduced to that stuff a lot earlier than I did. But Fright Night is rather tame, I think, for a, at the time, I want to say that was made in 86. So it was probably on VHS early 87. So I, it was probably spring of 1987. So I was just, just about seven years old. And that just, it blew my mind away. You know, it, it absolutely opened my eyes to a world that, that I fell in love with. And, um, you know, but it's, it's, it hasn't just been movies. It was always the books. It was ghost stories around the campfire. It was the haunted mansion at Disney world, which I've been on probably 200 times. Um, and I've been to Disney world, I think seven times altogether. So I just, oh. like <laughs> Tony, Tony, I have family in, or in Orlando and, uh, they live in Claremont, which is outside of Orlando. They all worked for Disney. It got so bad with them they memorized the narration to the haunted mansion and they would repeat it to me while I'm in the fucking ride. It, 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 it got that bad to the point where they've been on that thing so many times. They were like, yeah, well this, you know, he's going to say this, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And then that person's going to pop out there and that person's going to pop out there. I was like, you know what? You suck. I'm not going on this ride again <laughs> with you. I'm just not like, you know, why, why do I waste my time going on this ride with you? If you, if you're going to narrate the whole fucking thing, you know, what? I'm going to go in the back and ask them to turn the thing down so you can narrate it for me. Thanks. <laughs> the, um, and then that was the last time I wrote the haunted mansion. Sorry, go ahead. I actually wrote it for the first time this year. That's crazy. Cool. That's crazy. It's and it's, it's not scary. I mean, it's not even. No, really not at all. Not at all. But it's pretty cool. It is cool. It's it's such a cool ride. The production design is what you really need to appreciate. The amount of work that they put into designing the look of everything, and the fact that what well, when was Disney World and Disneyland? When were those open? The fifties and sixties. You know, the way uh, that, 70, I think 71 or 72 for Disney World and like the 50, 50s for Disneyland. So so think, think about the fact that they were doing projection work for some of the ghosts and, you know, work with mirrors and stuff. And it's like that that yeah. was like that was visual effects before visual effects existed. And and it's right there with you and, you know, five feet in front of you. So I'm sure back in the 50s, people were like, holy shit, this is crazy. You know, and just for me as a kid, I love it. And, you know, we went down there in February with my fiance's family and her seven and four year old nephews went on it with me. And they were, you know, they really didn't give a shit. You know, at this point, there was Post Malone videos on YouTube every five minutes. So, you know, to them, there's some curiosity when in February. Oh, God, the end of February, like I think the last week into early March. Okay, we just barely missed each other then. <laughs> Our bald head should have like had a signal, you know. I knew you all communicated, I just didn't know how. Well, the, uh, that no, explains a lot. It, it's like people who have surgery, you know, they can tell when it's going to rain because they get an ache in, their, in their, their bones or whatever. It's the same thing. You know, it's oh, a, yeah. oh, fair uh, enough, fair enough. Hmm. The, it's, not, uh, it's not a very good extra sense to have, but it, it, it serves a purpose from time to time. Um, fair enough, fair but, enough. So, so anyways, yeah, it's just I've, I've always had a, a, a very significant love for the genre 
more so than anything else. You know, some people love cars, and I, I appreciate cars. I'm a big fan of classic muscle cars. I owned a 68 Camaro for a very long time. But it's nice. like, but, but all these other interests in my life, I used to be a big outdoors person, you know, and all that shit. It's like nothing ever remotely came close to my love for the horror genre. And, and when I was in high school, I worked for a video store. And I, I got introduced by, there was like a 20 year old guy that worked with me and I was 15 at the time. And he's like, Oh, you like Friday the 13th and you like Halloween. Well, have you ever seen the fog? Have you ever seen the thing? Have you ever seen Prince of Darkness? Have you ever seen, you know, half of these other horror films that I'd never been introduced to because I didn't have like, I'm an, I'm the oldest sibling. So I didn't have an older brother who was a big horror fan who introduced me to it you know, or anything like that. And so I just, this guy was like, here, rent these. And since I worked at the video store, I could take as many movies home as I wanted with me. And so that's what I did. And, and I just, I became blown away by all this great eighties and nineties horror content. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I basically started saying in, in the nineties when I was a teenager that I want to make movies. And I had written a lot of like short stories and stuff as a kid and uh, a little more fantasy based type of stuff. Um, I had, I want to, it doesn't matter. I'm not even going to go into that story because it's a pointless tangent. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I, I in, in high school, like maybe freshman year or eighth grade, I wanted to get a bunch of my friends together and I was going to use my mom's video camera and I wanted to shoot, a, it was actually the same video camera that uh, Will has, that Will Byers has in Stranger Things Season 2 that he takes trick-or-treating with him, which was really funny to see that because it totally brought back all these memories. And so I was going to take that and I wanted to film a kung fu movie in my backyard. And awesome. I had all these great like, ideas of how I was going to do these shot compositions to make it bigger than it was. Like, at the time, Mortal Kombat was a really big deal. So... I was, <laughs> I was going to shoot a fight scene on like the the bench of the deck and the deck was elevated so I was going to be kind of down underneath the deck shooting up at these guys fighting and then one of them was going to uppercut the other guy off the deck and it's like he fell to his death in the pit you know just like in Mortal Kombat and, and flawless victory exactly and, and you know as a 13 year old in, in 1993 uh, Kids weren't really, like, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't prevalent. Like, nowadays, you know, the web series I curate, World of Death, the youngest person to have a film in it is a 13-year-old, you know? And and so it's like, nowadays, anybody can make a movie. But back in 1993, it really wasn't as, as prevalent, as I said. And so I just kept going that route and um, went to college, uh, did a normal college thing, didn't go to Columbia or any, you know, film school or anything like that, and did some independent studies in college where I shot a couple opening scenes to a short film um, about a killer clown uh, way before any of these killer clown movies have been out um, and did a bunch of other stuff. And I played a, a killer clown that's ahead of a, a, a cult of clowns called Beware of the Clowns. I know. I, I've, wait, wait. It was Tim Wolak's movie, right? Yeah, it was, it was Tim's movie. No, yeah. So these these gentlemen, we would they talk about it a lot. Yeah, I, I well, I know Tim from World of Death, and so he has a short film called Mastication in World of Death, and so he had given me a copy of that. So yeah, I remember you being in that. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so, so I just did all that stuff in college. And all along, I'm telling people, I want to be a movie director. I want to be a movie director. And then here I am. I'm 22. I'm 23, 24 years old. And I'm working a real debt job in the real world. And I just, it wasn't. It wasn't what I wanted to do, you know? And so I said, you know what? I, I had a friend from college, one of my fraternity brothers, who was like, let's go to Savini's Effects School in Pittsburgh. So I looked into it. I said, fuck it. You just need to take a plunge. He ultimately didn't go. So I moved to Pittsburgh by myself and spent two years out there. And while I was going to school, we were taking photos of all of our special effects makeup, but no one was shooting video of it. And I thought that that was kind of counterproductive because here we are doing special effects makeup for movies, but no one's taking any video of their makeup. So you don't get to see how it emotes and how the character can, can act with it. And so I said, I'm going to shoot a movie. And one way or another, I got around to doing my first feature. It's my party and I'll die if I want to. And originally it was going to be a short film. I had written a 45 page script. And so I knew it wasn't going to be a feature. I didn't think I had the money or time to do a feature nor could I get anybody to commit to a feature. Um, so I decided to do a choose your own adventure and I wrote a 45 page script and then it did another like 20 pages of a script that was other scenes that branched off from different moments throughout the movie and were different content that was not in the regular 45 page script. So then as we were shooting, we started adding stuff and one thing led to another that, you know, that was 2005 to 2006 in 2007, I went back to Pittsburgh because I moved back to Chicago. I lived in the suburbs. And then I went back to, to Pittsburgh in 2007, a year later, and shot some pickup scenes because I had a filmmaker that I was friends with at the time who watched the original cut and said, you need more nudity. You need more violence. And, and you know, if you want this to sell, that's what you need to add to it. And you need a name if possible. So... I wrote a couple extra scenes that involved nudity. I wrote a handful of additional death scenes to put into the movie. And I talked to Tom Savini and convinced him to come on for a one day role uh, as uncle Tom in the movie. And we basically, I went back out to Pittsburgh and we shot a bunch of stuff and, uh, and then it ended up having enough time length to be a feature length film. And, you know, I released it in 2000, late 2007 it started its festival run. Um, when all said and done, it won Best Audience Award. It won a couple Best Features, Best Special Effects, Best Screenplay. Um, and it was it just it was a great experience and uh, a really great uh, situation. Um, you know, I, I'm just I'm very proud of of what that film did to kind of kickstart my career. And and all I can say is that I I regret not following it up as quickly as I could have with other projects because back in 2008 when I was doing the convention circuits promoting and selling that movie, there were not a lot of other independent filmmakers out there. And, and this was right at the cusp of prosumer HD quality cameras coming out. So I shot on a Canon XL two, which is still SD and the movie looks like shit because of it. And I didn't know what I was doing with my camera. I'm not a cinematographer, so I knew nothing of gain and aperture and f stop you know i didn't know any of that stuff um i didn't have professional lighting or anything so people enjoyed it for what it was but if i could have followed it up i feel like i really could have made a, a much bigger name for scotchworthy back in 2009 and 2010 
Um, and unfortunately, I kind of took a break from from the conventions for a few years there. And when I got back into it really hardcore in 2014 and 2015, at that point, a lot of other independent filmmakers were already making a staple for themselves in the industry at the independent level. And it's almost like, you know, I came back and everybody's like, well, who the fuck is this old bastard? You know, because here I am in my early 30s and all these other guys are in their, and, and girls are in their early 20s making movies that are edgy and cool. And I just, I don't have the energy anymore like I did back then or the money to throw away to do that stuff. Um, but, you know, here we are, 2019. I've got four features under my belt, a number of short films. Um, I've been to some really awesome film festivals, including South by Southwest and Screamfest and uh, the Stanley Film Festival when that still existed, which is hands down the best film festival I could have ever been to. Um, and, you know, I'm very proud of the catalog that my friends and I have put together. Um, and all I can hope for is, is the next thing, you know? No, I hear you. I hear you. The, um, you know, the one thing, too, I wanted to hear about, you, you told me this story personally because I asked you years ago about this. But, you know, I'd love to hear you tell the audience and everything else how you came up with the name, uh, you know, Scotchworthy Productions. You know, I'm sure there's a story behind it. I may have heard, only heard part of the story, but I but if you could share, um, uh, you know, how you came up with that name. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting story because um, I'm not a scotch drinker by any means. Uh, I prefer <laughs> bourbon if I'm drinking hard liquor or tequila. That's beside the point. Um, <laughs> so, summer of 2001 is the summer between my junior and senior year of college. I worked for Vector Marketing selling Cutco kitchen knives, which was the best college job a guy could ask for because all we basically did was fuck around. I mean, we literally were drinking beers out of the trunk of my car before we would go into our weekly meetings. Um, and, and, our, and our, our manager didn't give a shit. And, uh, and so all we basically did was party. And this was back when the economy was still booming. So I would go to my friends, parents and stuff and sell them $700 sets of knives. And I'm making tons of money. It was a great time. And I worked with this guy named Bill Balick, who was a cinematographer. He was attending Columbia College. Really awesome guy. Super crazy and, and, and creative. And... Um, introduced me to a lot of really awesome stuff. Like I never really got into Twin Peaks and David Lynch until I hung out with Bill. And so Bill and I had a, had an affinity for horror films and wanted to make movies and kind of our manager knew that we both were going to school and interested in film. So he kind of said, Hey guys, you should start talking and hanging out. And so we did hit it off, started talking about doing projects together and at the same time, we're also watching a lot of movies together when we were hanging out. And a lot of stuff, the, the late 90s and early 2000s, in my opinion, and you can take my opinion with a grain of salt, it was a piss poor time for horror in cinema. Um, that was pre-Saw and the torture porn you know, period of time, but it was post the Scream period of time. So it's when you had a lot of these really shitty horror films that were coming out that just were not good at all. Um, Urban Legend. Um, uh, Urban Legend. Uh, um, I know what you did last, last summer. summer. I know what you did last or summer, whatever too. Whatever the hell it is. The, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Darkness Falls, um, the, the Tooth Fairy movies. <laughs> Dude, yeah, he, uh, Brandon actually twitched when you said that name. Like, <laughs> he had like a Mufasa moment. <laughs> 
I actually felt him twitch when he when you said that. <laughs> like that movie? I mean, it's not a terrible movie. It's just it suffers from being made in the '90s. You know what I mean? So, so like, and The Ring was great. The Ring is an exception, in my opinion, of of a great. I think that came out in like maybe 2000. And Blair Witch Project somewhere, yeah, somewhere between 01 and 02. Yeah. So, so that I think was a great horror film at the time. I've rewatched it since then. It's okay. The, the the original Blair Witch Project, going to the theater and seeing that, I think that was my senior year of high school, seeing that in the theater when people still thought it was a real thing was one of the coolest experiences I'll ever have, you know, for cinematic experiences. Um, and <coughs> I, I remember I went with a bunch of my friends. We were 17, and we, we were all packed into my buddy's minivan. <laughs> And he drove each of us home, and my one buddy at the time, my one buddy had to have my other friend walk him into his house and turn the lights on because he was that scared after watching that movie. Oh my God, um, which it's, is funny. That's like that's like the story of uh, of my of my Nana who couldn't shower for a month after seeing fucking Psycho, sure. like that okay. kind of shit. Like that's okay. the, that's crazy. And then, and by the way, that has to go down as one of the best movie movie marketing coups ever. Um, yeah. I mean, they're, they're going to teach, if that's not a chapter in, in movie marketing in school, I, I don't know. I don't know what movie is. I mean, to convince everyone that, that shit was real, um, uh, you know, and, and go, I mean, there was a documentary I watched, you know, where they had like five like detectives from different, from different counties in the East coast, call up the production company to reopen the investigation on these missing kids Fucking people that are like like actual, and these were people that were assigned to these cases by their higher ups to do that. Like they wanted to be part of the publicity chain, so they so they they like yeah, I got put on this case by my higher ups to come out and help you investigate. You know what do you have you know for me? It's fucking insane. No, it's it's super cool. My my co director on Skeletons in the Closet actually was going to Columbia um, at the time that that movie was coming out. And they sent a bunch of their students to the Cannes Film Festival, and he was there with other film students. And part of their job there, as interns essentially, was to help market films that were there. And he was marketing Blair Witch Project for Artesian, which was pretty crazy. You know, it sounds like it was a pretty cool experience. But so getting back on track, Bill and I were <laughs> Bill and I were seeing all these movies. That were terrible. They were just these terrible horror films. And we there was a big convention for Cutco it, towards the end of the summer, like in late July, early August, where we all got together at the super expensive hotel and conference center. There's probably a thousand college students there. Everybody's just partying, having a blast, and they do it where all the district managers, excuse me, get up and talk to you and motivate you to sell more because it's basically a pyramid scheme. You know, if, if you're, if, if, if I'm, if I sell $5,000 in knives and I make 20% off of that five grand, my manager is getting 5% and his manager is getting 5% and his manager is getting 5%. So these guys are like, Hey, you know, go on do this and do this and do this and make money. And the two managers, these two district managers who both drove Mercedes convertibles and then were in their late 20s, of course, and flaunted it. I mean, we were on a trip once and the guy, everybody was piss-ass drunk. We were at a, a skydiving camp 
and we were piss-ass drunk, and the guy let kids take his Mercedes around the field, driving around the field doing donuts, drunk as fuck, you know? And so, so we're at this convention. These, these, two, um, these two district managers made a bet on a bottle of Louis Trey. And on whose district could sell more. Okay. So, and so Bill and I looked at that and said, look, we're not going to bet a dollar, dollar, dollar liquor. But, but let's, let's, let's bet a bottle of scotch on what? Um, There's something going on with your sound. Yeah, you sound like a transformer. I am a transformer. Much better. <laughs> Much better now. Okay. So, so they basically bet a bottle of Louis Trey on whose district was going to sell more, which, you know, it's a $1,500 bottle of, of booze. And it's so 500 empty, it's a Baccarat crystal in, inside the fucking uh, thing. And, and it's actually not even that good. Um, it's just, it's just because it's in Baccarat. I mean, yeah, obviously it's personal opinion, but it's, but it's in Baccarat crystal. So there's, there's, you can buy this shit online, the empty bottles and everything else for like 500 bucks. Of course yeah. you would know that. I, well, you know, I tend to borrow. What are you going to do? Uh-huh. So, so, so these guys did that. And so Bill and I were, were poor college students. We said, you know what? We were seeing a lot of shitty horror films out in the theater. And at one point we kind of just said to ourselves, are we going to see, are we going to go and see a good movie, a good horror movie, or are we going to have to make one first? And, you know, we kind of made a bet with each other on a bottle of scotch. And so we started going to see movies. And after we would see it, we said, was that scotch worthy? And the only film we saw that we thought was even close to being scotch worthy was Below. Did you ever see Below, directed by the guy who did Arrival? No, oh, no. I saw that. It's about a haunted submarine during World War II, and it's fucking creepy, and it's awesome. You should, I highly recommend it. If you like moody, atmospheric movies, it is a great horror film. Um, yeah, probably. The, uh, we're, we're actually doing a 100-movie uh, uh, challenge for the month of October. We're dividing it up uh, uh, 25 films, uh, horror films, among the four of us to watch before the end of the month. And, and I actually may switch out one of them for that movie. If you recommend it, I, I definitely want to check it out. It's a great movie. Um, it's about 20 years old at this point, but it's a great, creepy, moody, ominous, atmospheric movie. Um, and uh, I... Uh, <clears throat> First of all, I don't know how you guys have the free time to watch fucking 100 movies, but hey, bravo. Uh, I'd love to. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so that's where the name came from when I decided to to create the the, the corporation uh, for my company. I originally was going to call it Bare Minimum Productions because I thought, you know, here I am with a camcorder and a couple of Lowe's 500-watt work lights making a movie, you know. But then I thought, you know, I need to do something different. Somehow Scottsworthy just was a thing and so that's that's how it became a, a thing and everybody says oh i love scotch and they talk to me about it all the time i'm like i don't fucking like scotch at all it has nothing to do with scotch you know <laughs> if i would have won the bottle and the bet i would put it on a shelf and let it sit there for eternity you know i don't know so yeah so that's where i that's where i came up with the movie title or the title that's, that's 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 actually pretty damn cool the um uh, and actually you know what it, um uh, there, there's something uh, fun I want to do that I I came up with in the last like I don't know two sec you know tw thirty seconds or so um uh, the uh, and if you're down for it um what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pull up I'm gonna pull up your IMDb uh, for directing 
Um, and I want to I'm going to go through the uh, the gauntlet because there's about ten films in there, and it would be cool to uh, to have you share at least one memorable story, funny story, um, you know, something that you remember that that'll stick with you for uh, uh, you know forever um, on each one of the, uh, the the films. Obviously, I know. Certain films will have, you know, uh, will have certain memories, and there's certain things you want to talk to. But I think it's a good lead-in for, um, uh, you know, talking about Sid, of course, um, uh, and we'll we'll get into him in just a little bit. But uh, give me just a hot second. I'm gonna pull up um, uh, the. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go in chronological order. Um, uh, so I'll go as far uh, back, uh, you know, all the way back to the beginning, um, and then uh, and then go from there. So. All right, so let's talk about um, uh, you know, back in two thousand and seven, um, uh, it's my party and I'll die if I want to. Um, uh, you know, when you're dealing with that production, maybe that's always your first out of the gate, you know, or so it says on IMDb. Um, you know, what's a what's a cool memory or a cool story that you have from that particular production uh, that you remember? Um, well, I'd say there's two. Uh, obviously, working with Tom Savini, he was my first uh, star to direct. I had worked as an intern for the Illinois Film Office on Road to Perdition, so I met Jude Law and Conrad Hall, who was a cinematographer on that, um, and I had and I had worked with Sam Mendes, which was really kind of cool. But you know, the first star that I directed was Tom Savini, and you know he doesn't have a good reputation, and he he earned his bad reputation. He's not the nicest person a, a, a fair amount of the time, but and, and he was very difficult to get to communicate with to get to set. Um, and I, you know, I had hoped he would have been a little more enthusiastic going into working on the movie with me since, you know, it's a bunch of his students making a horror film. You'd think he'd be excited about that. And it, it was very difficult to to get him involved and whatnot. Like there was a lot of a lot of delay on getting his email responses and stuff like that. But I'll tell you what, up until the day of shooting with him, I didn't think he was going to show up. And then the day of, he emailed me that morning. He said, I'll be there. He showed up. We shot with him for four hours, and it was a great time. He got super into, into being on set. He really got into what we were doing. He gave us a lot of advice and feedback on what was going on. And all in all, it was just a really wonderful experience. Um and, and it was a really cool way for me to kind of break, um, to kind of pop my cherry, for lack of a, a, a more, you know, tactful term, um, with, with working with talents that can possibly intimidate you. Um, but I think that the, the best story from that experience um, that I can remember was there's a moment in the movie when one of the characters gets scratched by the monster that's in the house. And... She, her and her two friends are barricaded in a room while the monster's trying to break in. And so the two friends who are not injured are barric are holding the door shut. You know, they're leaning against the door and the injured friend is leaning against a bed on the floor across the room from them. And she starts twitching and, and moving and gyrating and stuff like she's changing. And so they're kind of freaking out, like, what the fuck is going on with our friend? And she ends up exploding from the wound all over them and sprays them with blood and guts. And what we did was I wanted to do, use a potato gun. My dad 
used to build a potato gun with my brother and I when we were kids and fire potatoes across the pond that was in our backyard a good 300 feet. And so I thought that's the easiest way to create a cannon is we build a potato gun with a big ass fucking, you know, four inch pipe and PVC pipe and then just duct tape a garbage bag to the end of it, fill the garbage bag with the guts. And then when it fires, it'll just push the shit out of the bag and spray these girls across the room. And it's only got to travel 15 feet. So it's not the end of the world. It should do it. No problem. Well, lo and behold, um, and, and if you buy the, it's my party DVD, which includes the choose your own adventure version. It also has a behind the scenes feature, which has all the different takes of us doing this shot. And it took us about 35 takes on, I think three different nights of trying to get this shot accomplished. And it just, you know, the bag would burn because the hairspray would catch fire when it ignites. Um, and, or, or, or the guts would fall out on the floor five feet in front of the girls. But I'll tell you what, the 35th time, it blew up. It covered them head to toe in blood and guts. I had to, like, everybody in the room, there's 10 people in the room, including the actresses who are now covered in blood who probably didn't expect it to actually work because it's been 35 times. And I literally, like, and, and, and to give you an idea, the 33rd time, we just had a guy off camera take a bucket and throw it at the girls because we were so fucking pissed off. And at this <laughs> point, I shit you not, gentlemen, the bucket of blood and guts landed right between the two girls' heads and hit the door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, son so, of a... Bitch. So 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 it's four a.m. Everybody's tired. We hit everybody. I'm I'm like holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. I'm like everybody, nobody move. Girls, the girls freak out. Nobody nobody left character. None of the crew fucking flipped shit and jumped or did anything or messed up the sound. And we got our shot. And everybody was so excited about it. And. Those small victories are the moments when you're on a film set that build the camaraderie and develop the film family feeling. And that's what makes it all worthwhile. Those are the moments when, when I, I, I get in my car at the end of the night and I'm driving home and I, I just have the biggest shit-eating grin on my face because, <laughs> because what I had up here is now what's on, on video or on film and 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 it and and the audience is going to see what I wanted them to see, and that that to me is the most satisfying accomplishment an artist can feel. God, and those those moments too of that of that, and like I couldn't imagine that that little bit of I know that excited and panicked feel that you go when as soon as it works, and you go, oh my god, I hope they got the shot. <laughs> I hope that they got the fucking shot. The uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I was a cinematographer. On it's my party, and I'm not a cinematographer. I said it earlier. I don't know shit about cameras. I, I do now, but but in 2005 and 2006, I didn't know shit about it. So I'm holding the camera. Luckily, I didn't shake it or move it too much or anything, and and nobody else messed up. The guy who was running the boom didn't mess up. It was just it was awesome, and um, you know, it was just such a great experience. You know, uh, it, it's it's amazing sometimes how things work out. And, and what things like that really prove to me is that sometimes you just have to stay positive 
as much as it may be the most difficult thing in the world to do, you just have to stay positive because it will work out one way or another. Um, we had plenty of other trials and tribulations on It's My Party. I got locked out of the house we were using, which was basically condemned by the guy who was renting it because he wanted, he basically extorted money out of me, even though he had originally told us that he would let us shoot there for free. Um, you know, the, the girl who we cast to play the monster originally was apparently a wrestling, you know, female, female wrestler. And so I thought she's going to be agile and be able to move great and everything and ended up the day we get her in the makeup. It takes us three hours to do a full body creature suit on her. She isn't feeling good and doesn't do anything. She stands there. She has no energy. So I'm like, oh, my God, the the culmination of everything that this movie stands for, this full body creature suit is a piece of shit because this girl's not doing anything. She's standing here, literally standing there, guys. She's not even like, ah, she's just like fucking standing there. <laughs> my good friend, Angel, who was just a crew member at the time on this and a small part in the movie. He's like, you know what, dude, I'm kind of short, just like her. Tomorrow, let's try and fit me in the costume and see if we can make it work. And I'll tell you what, guys, they put the makeup on him. It was form-fitted for her face. It was sculpted for her face. But they put it on him. They were able to salvage the, the, the cowl and the facial appliance, and they put it on him. He put the creature suit on and fucking killed it as the monster. And, um, you know, it's my party, as funny as it is, to be the lowest budget and the worst technical movie I've done is a lot of my friends' favorite films of my catalog. And I think that a lot of that is because they see the heart in it. You know, my friends and I really cared about making that movie good. And, and it, I think it shows through in the final product, if nothing else, and just the, um, the atmosphere we built and, and just, you know, the fun that we had in it, you know? Yeah, that's 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 fucking cool, man. Man, we got dozens of stories about that happening. You know, the the panics, the uh, the you know the having to tow uh, tow a uh, a car out of our shooting zone, and um, uh, you know, and and you know, I mean, Zach's senior film getting kicked out of his uh, um, one of his locations, losing a location, losing power to a location. Yeah, that did happen too. And then you know, someone being picky about getting blood on the floor, even though it was dusty as all hell. And I'm probably gonna die a year earlier. Someone really requesting to take their pants off in the middle of a shot. All right, you know what? You really want to take your pants? Hold off. on. All right, there's a very perfectly valid reason about why that is. I had just watched an interview with Harrison Ford talking about Raiders, uh, um, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And that scene where he's tied up with Sean Connery and Sean Connery suggests saying, hey, it's a little hot in here. Do you mind if I take my pants off because they're shooting from the waist up? And Harrison Ford says, oh, that's cool. Says, Do you mind if I take my pants off? And then they sat there in their boxers. And then I was like, it's really fucking hot down here. Like, you mind if I take my pants off? Because you're not going to shoot me above the waist. Well, there's that. And he was worried about getting just a little bit of blood on his pants. I had good pants. What are you going to do? You they wash them. Ford, you're not Sean Connery. You well, wash the pants. Well, I'm definitely not Sean Connery. Um, the but you're it, neither. The yes, fine. The um, and that was, but actually, that was my first uh, producer uh, role. Um, uh, and I didn't even know it. I found you another another location. Um, uh, and that's Thanks, pretty boy. much what being a producer is: it's fixing problems. Essentially. <laughs> um, that's funny, Mark, because I, I honestly one of the funny stories from uh, High on the Hog 
that the crew always likes to tell is, uh, and I know we're jumping a little out of chronological order. That's fine. That's fine. And this wouldn't be my story. I, I've got a better story for Hein the Hog, but regarding what you're talking about pants, it's funny because <laughs> we, had, we had two sets on Hein the Hog, a, a cemetery scene where Sid is at his father's grave. And then we have a scene where, which is takes place on another day where he is in the field that one of his farm fields talking to the sheriff and it's funny because he's wearing two different outfits so in between the two scenes which we shot obviously one after another because we were across the street from one another and this is out in galena illinois it's a small farmer area farmer town area um called council hill illinois and in between the scenes sid had to change well we're on the side of the road this is as gorilla as it gets so sid Haig, of all people you know captain fucking spaulding Takes his clothes off, <laughs> and he's standing there in his boxers as people are driving by. And not a lot of cars, but a couple cars passed as Sid Haig is in his boxers there, and he didn't give a shit. And so that's one of those situations where when people bitch to me, when, when actors bitch about prissy things on set, you know, about, oh, these conditions are so terrible. It's like, look, I get it. I appreciate your concern. We will make you as comfortable as possible because I want you to be happy. And I want you to stay in character. But at the end of the day, Sid Haig stood on the side of the road in his underpants. Okay? <laughs> and, and so, 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 you know, it's, it can't be that bad. Not to mention the fact that half of the crew is probably working harder than you are. And I'm not saying that because I don't like actors. I love actors. Some of my best friends are actors. But uh, what, what I am saying is that everybody suffers on a movie set. It's just how it is, you know? The only no. difference. As if you're getting paid hundreds of dollars a day to be on that set and suffer, you know? No, 100% agree. Um, uh, and we had our fair share of problems, and we continue to have our fair share of problems. Um, Thankfully, uh, I've never had any problems with actors like that. All you, my actors have been fantastic. I don't, Zach has this unimaginable uh, uh, ability to, to hire these amazing actors that never have any drama, any problems, anything at all. It's because I know how to read people and I know who to hire. Well, yeah, they. I mean, that's... I mean, I've, I've had plenty of, of examples where somebody was gun-ho on during their rehearsal and during their audition, but as soon as you get them on set, shit flips 180 degrees, you know? And Thankfully, I've never had that issue before. The um, uh, You know, and, and, and I, I guess I, I, you know, being on the producing side and everything else, the EP, I am, you know, I am and still am an actor, so I can talk to them and be like, come on, really? The, uh, you know, like, what are we doing here? The, uh, I mean, I, I've been in worse situations than this. You know, you know, I've, I've dealt with worse conditions than this. You know, dude, dude, being in that basement and, and breathing in asbestos and Zach and I will die a year earlier than we're supposed to because of filming in a, in a basement with possible asbestos. Um, uh, you know, that, that was a, uh, was a bad condition. Oh, that was a, uh, that was fun. But it was fun though. It was a lot. We're the of only ones who are like, no, nah, fuck masks. No, 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 no. We don't it, need that. I don't want to wear a mask because it would ruin my performance. Um, uh, the, uh, I got real method. It's all for the love. At the end of the day, it's all for the love. Sometimes you got to make sacrifices, if, even if it's, I mean, what are you going to do when you're 85 years old anyway? You might as well just die at 84, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with it. So, all right. So, I'm gonna. I, I'm all right because I do want to talk about this. This one too. Uh, let's talk about a chance at hell. Um, uh, you know, all those, all those many uh, ten years ago. 
Um, uh, the uh, which which by the way was I'll I'll tell in my thing real quick um, was an absolute blast getting in a shit ton of makeup and and hanging out with you know with I, all people. That's where I learned that. Uh, that all FX makeup people are big burly Viking people that talk about metal um, for hours. Like that's that's the set I learned that on, and I talked with all the makeup guys for at least for at least two hours about Metallica and Megadeth. And you know, I saw Metallica back in '86. It was great. Fuck Dave Mustaine. The, the uh, like, and, and, and I was like, oh wow, I'm solidified. Thank you for for doing that. Um, uh, you know, I had I had so much fucking fun on that set. Um, uh, the uh, the rehearsal were uh, the rehearsals were fun, but the actual set. I mean, that was I think that was my actual. That was the first twelve hour I ever I ever did in my life. Um, uh, that, that was the first time on a chance in hell. Most of our days on a chance in hell were sixteen to eighteen hours. <laughs> I don't know. It was always it's all a blur for me, Tony. Uh, the um, uh, you know, I, I I was having so much damn fun. I think I was I think I was like there at six in the morning talking with you and another guy about Pulp Fiction at four in the morning. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, I have those memories and then being in makeup for hours and, and having a great time. And, you know, everyone was happy to be on that set. You know, there, at least from what I observed, I don't, I don't know anybody else's perspective, but I mean, it, it was, it was a fun, fun set. I still talk to some people that, you know, uh, from that set, um, you know, Vinny and I are obviously, we've known each other for, you know, I've known Vinny for a long time. I think he was there as well. Um, I still talk to Casey, um, uh, um, uh, you know, it was Casey Martinson. You know, I still talk to a bunch of those people from college. Um, it was a lot of fun, you know, getting uh, and getting made up and helping out and being a PA. That was one of my first PA experiences as well. Um, uh, you know, it it, um, it shaped me to to really take a look at filmmaking um, in, a, in an actual art form. I mean, coming from you know, I did a few films here and there that were very much very much in the same vein as uh, as it's my party and I'll die if I want to that type of guerrilla filmmaking that was one of my first um, experiences being on a on a very professional set um, uh, so and I, I'll, and I remember it very very well and I enjoyed myself um, and I felt a part of something um, even though I had a, a smaller role in it and everything else I actually felt like I was in fact a part of something bigger than myself um uh you know and funny enough i don't know how that worked out but you and i were the last ones in the damn parking lot on that on that last you know that second day or whatever um and i don't and we just we were so tired we just hey later man um uh you know hey that was fun thank you so much tony i appreciate it man and then we pulled out of the elgin parking lot and then that night i actually uh i think i looked at my clock and it said you know 12 o'clock uh, midnight. I I fell asleep. I woke up. It was twelve oh one. I was like, son of a bitch. And then I looked around. I'm like, oh shit, it's daylight. It's twelve oh one in the fucking afternoon. I felt like I was asleep for thirty seconds. Um, uh, it was one of those kind of experiences, which I've had many hanging out with these these crazy guys. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, it was a hell of an experience. I had a lot of fun on your set. Um, uh, you know, and I wanted you to know that. Um, I'm sure I told you at some point over the last decade, but I wanted you to hear it from me that that it was it's one of my first big experiences, and it set a precedence for me about how to properly run a set. Um, uh, so I appreciate you inviting me on that crazy adventure, but. But please, by all means, you know, I would love to hear your favorite story on that on that set and, you know, what your perspective was being uh, the director. I, I appreciate you saying that, Mark. It means a lot to me because, you know, when we're all in the trenches together, we, we you know, we get dirty, we sweat, we fucking get pissed off. It, it happens, but then there's still that, that silver lining 
which is the the end product and and what we capture on on tape or on film and uh you know a chance in hell was by no means an easy feat you know that was an eight day shoot i think our average days were about 16 hours i literally got one hour of sleep every night of those eight days and and just like you that last day of shooting i went home everybody from out of town drove home and i slept the entire next day i slept a full i think 24 hours um but you know shooting that movie the the story i have from that is well first and foremost that was just it was amazing how that all became what it was you know i had done a couple short films between it's my party and a chance in hell and my my co-writer and one of my best friends john halusik um, and I used to play a lot of the Nazi zombies on Call of Duty World at War. And my buddy Mitch Martinez, who was the cinematographer on A Chance in Hell, who I'd met, he had done the pickup shots for the nudity and violence and It's My Party. Um, he's from Philadelphia. And he had called me up and said, Tony, I just got a Red One camera. This was the first time that these were out. He was one of the first people to get one. And he's like, I don't want to do any more commercial or industrial stuff. I want to do something narrative-based. Let's do something. Let's shoot a trailer to one of your movies. I was trying to get um, together financing for the sequel to It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To. You Would Die Too If It Happened To You. Um, <laughs> nice. Which, which would be such a great movie, and I want to make it so fucking bad. So if you guys have a millionaire friend out there, let's make a fucking movie together. Um, but... We, he's like, let's do something. So I talked to Johnny and Johnny and I were like, let's write a short film script for a chance in hell. And let's, let's make a, a, a Nazi zombie movie. And I had a, a regular, I, a regular friend of mine when I bartended has been collecting world war two stuff forever. Um, he's like in his seventies now. And so he's like, you can use it whenever you want. So I got all these guns, like authentic world war two guns, machine guns, rifles, pistols, uniforms, equipment. And we rented this old factory in Elgin, Illinois, and we shot a movie. And what, to me, in my mind, was starting out as something small grew so exponentially as we were developing it during pre-production. And then once we were actually shooting it, it, it it's like as Mark described it, it, it was like lightning in a bottle. And it was such a great experience as, as stressful and as strenuous as it was on, on a lot of us, it, it really was the turning point, I think, in my mind where I looked at it and I said, you know what, you're, you, you're not just capable and the people that you surround yourself with are not just capable of making a movie. You're capable of making a professional quality film. Um, and, and, you know, A Chance and All we made for $9,000. So when people look at that, I don't think they, they could guess that we made it for that little. And a lot of it's sweat equity. Um, but the moment on that movie that really made what was the moment that I remember is my father visited the set one of the nights. And afterwards, he just kind of came up to me. He was there for probably a good six, seven hours. And he just saw the hustle and bustle of, what, 40 people on set? All the Easily. parts. Easily. You know, I mean, I think the most we had on set one time was 70 people between crew and like 35 extras and present company included. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You were there that night. And it's like my dad, after six or seven hours of being there, hanging out, seeing, 
you know, and again, you want to call me cocky, fine, fuck off, because I'm not cocky, I'm confident, and I deserve to say that, you know, there were other people there helping, by all means, Benny was my first AD, Chris was my special effects supervisor, and I love these guys, I fucking love the people that worked, Amy Ferro, who started as a PA and became the production designer, within like three days, promoted or got promoted from PA to production designer, I mean, that is substantial, working your way up the ladder, you know? Um, that's like field promotions in the military to like go from a private to a general. And, and so, yeah. but, but the fact that we were able, like as Mark said, to coordinate and orchestrate all the moving parts that were required for that film. My dad came up to me when he was going, leaving, and they gave me a hug and said, Tony, I have, and nothing against my brother or sister. They, they have wonderful lives. But my dad said, I've never been more proud of one of my children than I am of you right now. And that will forever be a moment that just remains in my mind and, and, and is a constant motivator for me to continue striving to do more and, and progress. Um, you know, so that it, it was just it was such a great experience. And that was another turning point in my career because that showcased the fact that we could create quality work technically as well as as you know story wise because i think that a chance in hell for being a 35 minute short film does a great job of introducing characters that you care about and and some really great action moments and and again done for nine grand um and that film subsequently introduced me to a lot of my current film family because that's the film that they saw or heard of and said well who's this tony wash guy and, you know, here I am saying, I'm nobody, I'm just Tony Wash. But they're like, well, we've heard about your movie, A Chance in Hell. We want to work on your next project with you. And that's where I met Robert Patrick Stern, who's my brother from another mother. He has been my cinematographer, my co-producer, and one of my best friends ever since 2011, when we met, when he wanted to work on The Storm, which never got made. Um, but he shot High in the Hog. He shot The Rake. He shot The Muck. He shot skeletons in the closet. So, you know, if it wasn't for a chance in hell, I I wouldn't have the catalog of films that I have at this point. Yeah, and funny enough, we wouldn't even be in this, actually wouldn't even be doing this interview right now, probably without a chance in hell. Exactly. The um so there's a lot of there's a lot of point of origins from that movie. Um uh, the um a lot of, and actually a lot of people I met, you know, that that came from that movie. Um, uh, you know, I think I, I think uh, Casey and I became better friends on that set. Um, uh, you know, I, I met a lot of other people uh, and everything else. I mean, that's where, by the way, that's where the, 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 the Burley Viking story comes from about makeups. That's also where I use Tony's phrase all the time about, you know, hey, how much money does it look like we spent on this? I tell that to people about the first episode of Living Nightmares all the time. It's actually because of you, Tony, because you use that ex example all the time. And that's and that's my producial you know talking and everything else hey how much money do you think we spent on this and we get you know two grand three grand and we're like nah 800 bucks the um uh, most of it went to a dinner most of it didn't went to my bribing my father um the night before um uh, with a nice dinner worth uh, it oh very worth it and it was a lot of a lot of fun um so the next the next one too i want to ask because the title is too um is too good for me not to bring it up is uh um is bbq massacre yeah. Um, I want to I want to hear about this one, man, because because that title is just too good for me not to just overlook. 
I, I knew you were going to say Barbecue Massacre. That's funny. Um, which happens to be some people's favorite film of mine as well, um, which makes no sense whatsoever. So <laughs> another one of my good friends, Brian Wolford, uh, who runs Geek Nerdery, and he used to ha run the Drunken Zombie podcast. Um, just, just really good people. Big horror fan, too. Lives down in Peoria. And I had gone down a couple of times, one or two other times, and helped him shoot short films that he was directing and producing. And uh, so he was supposed to do uh, a short film. I believe it was about werewolves playing cards, playing poker, um, like biker werewolves playing poker. It was a kind of a cool concept, all taking place in one location. And we were going to shoot it over a weekend. And, um, and so I was driving down there and the day of he basically called and was like, Hey, I got bad news. We had to cancel a handful of my actors canceled on me. So we can't shoot it. And I was like, well, that's fucking bullshit, you know, but he's like, so, you know, I'm like, well, I already took off of work. So, you know, I can still come down. And he's like, that's what I figured is if you still want to come down to Peoria, let's hang out and let's either spend the weekend watching movies and drinking beers, or let's spend the weekend and let's hold a 48 hour film contest. And so he said, let's fucking do that. So we got together with Robert Poole from Indie Horror TV and Robert Poole hosted the event and we basically put out a feeler to people, which with the short notice, I think only one other group of people actually did a film and they had, they, you know, they had someone pick a prop and a phrase to say in the movie and one other thing. And the prop was a barbecue spatula, um, barbecuing spatula. And so basically we had to make a movie off of that. And so we decided to, um, to do, it was, uh, Darren and Brian and I, and, and, and maybe one or two other people. And we just came up with barbecue massacre and Darren had, uh, his dad's camper on his, in his driveway. And so we just, we, we did a quick little outreach to get some actors together and we shot, I think just that day, it might've been just that day. It might've been a day and a half. I think it was just that day. And I was using like my Canon Mark II and Brian was using, I think a 7D and we, we just did a two camera setup and we shot these, you know, these two couples basically hanging out with their camper camping. And they had bought the camper from one of the couples that bought the camper from this weird old creepy dude. And they're talking about him while they're sitting and eating dinner and playing cards outside the camper. And then we cut to inside the camper and from underneath the bed, you know, the bed rises up because there's storage underneath the bed in those campers and the guy's hiding underneath the bed. And so then it just becomes a slasher film from there. And he kills them with, you know, the different barbecue implements basically. Um, so nice. it, it was a lot of fun to do. It was a ragtag production. You know, I think we probably spent about $40 on it and we shot it in a day. Brian literally wrote the script an hour before we started shooting. Um, and I, <laughs> I think it took him about 45 minutes to write it. Brian's really good at, you know, just flying through dialogue and stuff. And so we had a lot of fun with that. And it's, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's anywhere out there right now. I, we were going to include it in World of Death for a while, um, but I don't think we ever did. And uh, so, you know, it's fun. It, it was a fun little moment in, in my cinematography or in my, in my, my catalog, but you know, that's, yeah, that's barbecue massacre. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. It was it was too uh, it was too good of a title not not for me not to bring it up. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about let's talk about the muck. So the muck chronologically is not the next thing I did, but in terms of things being released, it is the next thing I did. So because um, we did shoot high in the hog before that, we shot parts of skeletons in the closet before that. I also started World of Death. Well, I guess I started World of Death because of the muck. So the muck we did because of um, <clears throat> the ABCs of Death 2 contest. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to do a film because I figured there's 500 other films in it. We're not going to win. But a bunch of my friends said, well, let's just do it, you know. And if we don't win, we'll take our short film and all of our other friends' short films. Because I think I had about seven other friends, including Brian, who did Barbecue Massacre with me who had all done a short for the contest. And so we said, well, if none of us win, let's take our shorts and put them on a DVD together and sell them for five bucks at the conventions. And so we said, fuck it, let's do, let's do muck. And so Rob and his now wife, Sarah, who we'd met on High on the Hog, um, who's a production designer, and myself basically got together and we, we created the muck. Um, I wrote a quick little script and we basically did it. And... I don't know if I can, I, I think the best experience I can say about the muck is not from production, but more so the success of the muck. The muck was accepted to South by Southwest in 2014, which was a dream come true for both Rob and I, and I'm sure everybody else. Um, that is a festival that we all had very high aspirations to, to get to one day. Um, it was an incredible experience going down to Austin for that. Uh, you know, I, I, I got to talk with Robert Rodriguez for a few minutes and, and check out Troublemaker Studios. Um, you know, it, it was it was really cool. I, I sat in the bus on the way to Troublemaker Studios. I sat next to the guy who played the priest in John Carpenter's Vampires of all weird random things, um, which was kind of cool. You know, so it was just it was a great experience. And then from there, getting into South by Southwest opened the doors for so many other great festivals because, you know, they, they basically cherry pick from the big festivals like Sundance and South by that start at the beginning of the festival run, you know, Berlin. Um, and so that's why we got into uh, to the Stanley Film Festival, which takes place or took place. It only ran for three years, I think. It was at the Stanley um, Hotel in Estes Park. Colorado, where Stephen King came up with the idea for The Shining. Um, and that's where I, I met with, you know, I, I talked to Travis Stevens, who did Starry Eyes and um, Cheap Thrills, and he just did Girl on the Third Floor, and he did We Are Still Here. He was a producer on a lot of those. Um, you know, Elijah Wood was there, so I met Elijah Wood because he was there with uh, Open Windows and um, one other film that I can't remember. Um, so, and you know, Larry Fessenden was there. So it was like, it was such a great little festival, but everybody there was like a name, you know, it's like, these are the people who are doing indie films at the million dollar level, you know, that we all want to get to. Um, and, and plus it was at the Stanley hotel, which was super cool and creepy. And, you know, you do a tour of it, you see room two, three, seven. And so it was just really cool. Um, Although it was, I think it's two seventeen in the book, not two. Yeah, it's two seventeen in the book. So, anyways, um, we went to Scream Fest, you know, all sorts of stuff. So it was just really cool. Um, that I think that's the best thing about the muck, you know, that that really, uh, it was really fun being able to to 
to go to those festivals and mingle with people that are now making, you know, these multi-million dollar films and, and, you know, so yeah, that was really cool. That's, that, that is cool. That, that is cool. The, um, uh, shit, we'll, we'll get there. The, uh, At some point. It, it'll happen. Um, uh, the, uh, so, um, uh, so let's, uh, let's, uh, talk about, uh, the, the skeletons in the closet, man. So skeletons is technically what I would consider my fourth feature, even though we started shooting in 2012. Um, <clears throat> We had uh, my co-director, Ben Lewandowski, and I had each been a part of a, a, an anthology series called Chop Shop that was consisting of four short films by four different directors in the Chicagoland area. And after we'd shot our short films in a wraparound story, after a year or two of us in post-production, we kind of ended up disbanding the project. And the other two directors went their separate ways with their short films. And Ben and I always kind of talked about keeping ours together. And Ben and I were working together on different stuff at the time. He was the original editor on The Rake, which was my third feature. Um, he edited, subsequently edited High on the Hog. Uh, he did the re-edit on High on the Hog, I should say, because the original editor on that was Mike Heffler, who's an awesome dude. Um, and, and so basically Ben and I had these two short films that were each 25 minutes long. And we're like, we don't want to just release these as shorts. Let's, let's finish them as a feature and so i've had the idea of skeletons in the closet in my head since college so i pitched the idea to him and said let let's co-produce and co-direct this together and we'll edit it together and all that stuff and let's do it and so we did it we convinced rob to come on board and the rest of the team and we shot the rest of the content in 2017 put it all together and so it's an anthology film it's an 80s anthology film it's very much like elvira meets the crypt keeper um it's, it's a lot of fun if you guys haven't seen it i highly recommend you watch it because it's just it it's the film i'm most proud of i think it, it's just such a great film and so much fun um and it's the one film that has been released looking exactly like how we wanted it to look no one meddled with it after we you know had our say in what we wanted it to look like which is a big conflict with a lot of uh, a lot of times in working in in the film industry, you know, if you don't have final cut, um, you end up losing a lot of your originality that you had in it, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so skeletons, I think skeletons for me was just <clears throat> my favorite experience with skeletons. I think is just seeing something that I've had in my head for 20 years. One of my favorite ideas that I've ever had, you know, and I've had a hundred ideas in my head through the years. But Skeletons in the Closet is one of my favorite ideas that I've had in my head. And so to see it come to life and come to life as well as I think it turned out is to me one of my favorite, one of my favorite accomplishments. Again, it's like I and I look at, at it's my party and then I look at Skeletons in the Closet and the the progression of of the technical aspects, the storytelling aspects the professionalism of how it looks. I'm just, I'm just so proud of it. And so that's, that's what I would say is, is the story I take from that. Um, also working with some of the people on it, you know, Ellie church, who's a big independent screen queen was a lot of fun to work with. And it was a lot of fun convincing her to do the part of the widow because she didn't want to originally. Um, and, and Adam Michaels as her dead husband, Charlie, uh, Adam's such a great guy and he's become a good friend of mine. Um, 
and you know just bringing a lot of our team back together again you know i i love my film family so much and i don't get to see a lot of them very often so when we're on set working together it's some of my best some of my favorite times and i know you guys can attest to that so i think oh, that's yeah. absolutely absolutely, absolutely. The uh, yeah, we got it. So, all right. So let's get to the two uh, the two top dogs, because um, uh, I know that the, these bring uh, these are brought up a lot. Is uh, let's talk about the rake. Um, uh, I know the rake is is pretty big for you. The rake was the film that that I I looked at and said this is the one that's going to take us to the next level. This is the one that's going to get recognized more mainstream, um, and to a degree it has. I, I am disappointed that it hasn't gotten as much exposure as I feel like it should. Um, but at the end of the day, it was in every Walmart across the country. It was distributed by Sony. So, you know, you really can't argue with that. Um, but the rake was pretty awesome. You know, we, we incepted the concept in, honestly, what it was is we, we were trying, we spent a, the better part of a year in 2014 um, trying to to produce and finance the feature-length version of The Muck, which would be a fucking amazing movie. It would be such a fun fucking drive-in style, balls-to-the-wall, violence, gore, just have fun for 90 minutes, you know, horror movie. Um, you look at a movie like Terrifier, people love Terrifier. The Muck is like the Terrifier, only it's the blob instead of a clown, okay? And <laughs> of course you would. Who wouldn't watch it? You know, <laughs> and and so we 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 had a hard time. We were looking for a lot of money. Like we were looking for like initially five hundred grand, then we were looking for one and a half mil, and it just wasn't happening. So we finally said, you know what, we're going to pull the plug on this. And I was really disappointed. I was so disappointed because I was really I had my hopes set real high that we were going that we had momentum behind the movie. We had the short film. We had South by Southwest. Like we're going to make it, and it just didn't happen. So I was over at my buddy Jason's house, my special effects supervisor, who's a huge horror fan too. And we were bullshitting and just bitching about it. And he's like, well, fuck it. Let's just make a different movie. Let's do our own movie. Let's do a monster movie. Let's do the rake. You know, let's tap into a creepypasta. And so he gave me the story. I kind of read through it. And I was like, all right, you know, let's, let's see what we can do. I, I sat down and talked to Rob. Again, Robert Patrick Stern, who's my cinematographer and co-producer. He was intrigued by the idea and it just kind of grew from there. And so we're talking, this is mid-October of 2014. November, I met with my co-writer, Jeremy Silva. This is the first thing he and I worked on together. Jeremy's an amazing writer, um, very professional, meets deadlines, very good at, at mature dialogue and good character development. By the end of December, we had a script that we were happy with. Um, we started casting and finding locations and raising money from investors in January and February. And, um, and so from there, it just kind of grew and we ended up, uh, you know, teaming with a production company out of LA who put some more money into the movie and helped us obtain Shanae Grimes beach, uh, and Rachel Melvin and Joe Nunez and Isabella Miko. And so those were kind of where the names came from that were in the rake. And, you know, the rake was a great experience because while we were making it, it was it was the epitome of my career. That was the moment where I said, I, again, I, I, I that was one of those times, like I said, with It's My Party, 
when the cannon blew up and, and worked. Every morning I drove home and I was I had a playlist of music and I was singing every song at the top of my lungs. And <laughs> I, I was on cloud fucking nine because it's like, here it is. I'm making a fucking movie with a full body creature suit monster that looks fucking amazing. And the production design's amazing. The cinematography is amazing. I wanted to make Alien meets The Shining. And, and, and I know that that's a lofty expectation. And people can look at me and say, oh, well, you're, you're really confident in saying that. I'm not saying that we made Alien meets The Shining, but that's what I was striving to achieve. And I think that it maintains and, and touches upon a lot of the atmosphere that, that those movies had. I just got attacked by something. <laughs> the kamikaze flight um and so you know I, I was really very proud of it and i was proud of the team that we put together my first ad mike bruni is one of the one of the best motherfucking people to have on a film set i've ever worked with um you know and like the subsequent year he's also an actor he won um best actor i think it was or or his film won best film at sun at south by southwest and you know so it's like just great working with people like that um and again, my, my film family, Robert Patrick Stern, Sarah Sharp, Angela Cox, uh, Jason Kane, Jim Peterson, you know, I could say a million names of different people, Francis Claudio, you know, Louis Wong, I fucking Brian Daly. I love all these motherfuckers. Um, and not to mention the fact that the same as with the chance in hell, I would call, I called Savini's special effects school out in Pittsburgh. And I said, Hey, it's Tony Wash. I graduated in 2006. I'm making a movie. I'm looking for effects artists. Do you have any effects artists who are graduating or who would be interested in coming out and working on a feature-length movie and getting a credit on a real project? And lo and behold, just like with The Chance in Hell, which is how I met Jason, as well as a, a number of other amazing artists, um, they sent us Tom Cassidy and Reed Cesar. And these two motherfuckers are fucking amazing. I mean, <laughs> Tom, Tom Cassidy, if you follow this guy on Instagram, the shit that he does is amazing. These guys, Reed, Reed's out there working with, I don't even remember the names of the companies, but these guys were working on Guardians of the Galaxy. And, you know, I mean, they're doing major shit now. And they lived in my house, my, my roommate Jim's house. Jim, Rob, my camera, my cinematographer, and I all lived together in Bartlett, Illinois, for six, four or six years together. And Tommy and Reed lived in our spare bedroom for three weeks and built the creature in our basement. And it was just fucking such a great experience. Um, so yeah, the, the rake was really cool. The rake was a great time. The rake was also a real learning experience. The rake was a, was, was an experience where we learned real fast how to be professional with filmmaking, how to handle the legalities of filmmaking, how to deal with SAG, you know, and, and thank, God for my unit production manager, Angela Cox, um, because she, she was a, a fucking godsend on that movie and, and her, and the, and the second AD Ryan Gregory and, and everybody, you know, the, the people who orchestrated the logistics of it and the behind the scenes, all the paperwork, the boring shit that you don't think about, but has to be done. Um, they're amazing people, you know, and, and, uh, and so it, it just, I think the, the, the best experience on the rake for me, you know, that, that was, again, it was a trying movie. The first day we were using a 20 foot Kessler crane and no, I think a 30 foot Kessler crane. 
and we had my my cinematographer Rob's 6K um, Red Dragon up on this Kessler crane, and it was a little too windy, and the wind blew the crane over and broke his thirty thousand dollar camera, and and it and we found out that our production team had not acquired insurance. It was coming into fruition the next day. Oh no! So had to take money. Out of, we had to take money out of our budget and pay to fix the camera. Luckily, it was only like four grand in, in repairs. But and luckily, we had a second camera. We shot the entire movie with two to three cameras. But it was it 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 brought us closer together, you know. Um, but but like being on set. And seeing that full body creature suit at the end of the movie, the creature stands up after it's birthed itself out of this man. It like tears through this man's flesh and comes out of his body. So if you haven't seen the rake, you got to fucking watch it just for the ending five minutes alone. And because I'm not a big fan of the edit, I'm not a big fan of the rest of the movie, but there's so much great stuff in it. And the last five minutes when the creature, when we were on set, and, and that creature stands up at its seven and a half, eight feet stature and is looming over Rachel Melvin and stretches out its fucking clawed hand and there's slime dripping off of it. And it just growls at her. It screams at her. Being the director of that movie and, and thinking about this monster and, and, and you know, I, I told Jason how I wanted the monster to look and to see how he sculpted this idea in my head and how he brought it to life. And then seeing it on camera on the monitor, it's it's there's no words to describe that. There is no words to describe how amazing that feels. Because as a filmmaker and as a horror fan, that's the moment that you want to be at. That's the moment that you believe you will never be at. Because you always think, ah, it'll never happen to me. And then there I was all of a sudden doing it, making a, a couple hundred thousand dollar movie. We you know starring people that, that that you know were were in pretty big time things, and it was just really fucking cool, you know. And you know, it's I I wish that they would have put it into festivals. I wish they would have marketed it more. But at the end of the day, it was it was still a great learning experience, and it was a cool movie. I mean, I think we still did a lot of really cool shit in that movie. So nice. That's 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 a that's a fucking cool story. Yeah, that's a really cool story. The, uh, for the next one, let's take a break for battery change. Yep, yeah, we'll, we'll take a, a two-minute two break, or five-minute break. Yeah, everybody use the bathroom. We're going to change the batteries up. All right, so, all right, and then we'll, we'll, finish, we'll finish it out um, uh, with, of course, the, the big highlight, because I know um, we got a, at least a couple stories from this is uh, um, High on the Hog. Um, I would love to hear about some of your favorite stories uh, from that. Um, uh, you know about some of the experiences you had on that set as well, and then I know these two gentlemen got a couple questions uh, um, uh, for you um, about uh, obviously the director and the DP here definitely wants to talk about a few things. But share some stories about about that set because I'm sure there's a few. Well, High and Hog was an interesting experience because originally Jason and I were hired to do the special effects on the movie, and. Uh, you know, there's there's a gunshot to a head and some axe chops and stuff like that. And so it wasn't anything major, but um, a number of the people that we worked with, like Robert Patrick Stern again, um, he had been hired to, to be the DP on it. 
and a lot of his camera and lighting team, you know, Brian and Francis and um, these guys at, were all part of it as well. And so when they were looking for a special effects team, the producer had also seen a chance in hell here <laughs> at the Arcata. She was at the Ar at the Arcata Theater. Oh, um, no kidding. There, yeah. And so she had contacted us to do the special effects. Well, then there was like two or three phone conversations with her for like 30, 45, you know, an hour long where she was asking me all these questions about producing and directing based off of my experience on A Chance in Hell. And after the third conversation, I was kind of like, you know, you're asking me all these questions. Are you going to give me an associate producer credit? Or are you like asking me to direct your movie? Because at this point, like, what's the deal here, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and, and she's like, actually, I, I, I'm thinking about going to the executive producer and talking to him about having you direct the movie because I'm not happy with our current director. I guess the guy wasn't talking to any of his department heads or anything like that and wasn't doing any of the pre-production and development that he should have been. So I end up going from being the, uh, from being the, the special effects coordinator to the director of this film, um, based on having a couple conversations with this producer. And, you know, I, to be honest, I really, I didn't care much for the script. Um, and, and I, I've never shot anything other than horror, and it's obviously not a horror film, it's Grindhouse. But I was very excited to work with Sid Haig, and um, I'd actually heard bad rumors about Robert Zadar and Joe Estevez, um, which could not have been more wrong. I think that there was a period in their lives and their careers where they were hard to deal with, um, you know? Uh, but when I worked with both of them, they were amazing. Um, I, I am, am so grateful to have been in the position to have, to, to have been at the helm of that project when I was. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted to work with those guys. And so I, I wanted that job and I took it and we get out to set, which was in Galena, Illinois, like I said, which is three hours from where most of us lived in the suburbs and five days into shooting the movie. This producer, the woman who had hired, who had convinced the executive producer to hire me to direct it and who had hired us as the effects artists, she had a nervous breakdown or something. She just, it, it was crazy. And so she ended up leaving set and, um, you know, there was a, a period of time where everybody was kind of like, what are we going to do? Is this the end of it? You know, are, are we done? And there were conversations that were had with Sid. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Bob Farster, who's a producer on the movie, whose house we were shooting in. And uh, that's Sid's house in the movie. And he was basically the guy who provided all the locations for us and stuff. And so there was conversation with him. And then Rob and I had a conversation. And we basically said, if Sid, Rob, and I all get promoted to producers, we will we will finish this film. And so Sid and I had a conversation. And at this point, Sid and I had been working together for five days now. And we had developed a really great um, relationship, not just because we worked well together and, and we, had, we had a good time while we were working together, but also because I think that he 
I mean, Sid's been making, he was making, you know, he made movies for over 50 years. So he was on that set and he saw the issues. And, and if you listen to Sid interviews about High in the Hog, he'll say that initially it was a ragtag team of people, you know, young filmmakers who didn't really know what they were doing, but everybody was eager to learn and everybody was passionate about doing it. And, and that's the truth. You know, we all were excited to be making a movie with Sid Haig and Robert Zadar and Joe Estevez and each other. And so we, we basically all just kind of said, we're going to do this because we want to. And so we're going to find a way to make it work. And so Sid and I got up in front of the entire team on, at the start of our fifth day of shooting and said, here's what happened. Here's how we're going to get past it. Here's what we need from you guys. And if everybody as a team agrees to this, we'll do it. And so we added two days to the shoot schedule and went from there. And Sid was a producer at this point. Um, to date, I think it's the only film that Sid put his name above the title of. Uh, you know, Sid Haig starring in High on the Hog, which is really cool. And, you know, I, I mean, I, obviously I miss the bastard, you know. Um, and he... He was a hell of a guy. I mean, he he taught me a lot. And it wasn't even necessarily like sitting there and giving me advice, which he did a lot. I mean, we we spent two weeks together and spent a lot of time together during those two weeks. Um, so there was a lot of advice, a lot of stories, you know, talking about uh, I was just watching Spider Baby before I jumped on with you guys and him talking about working with Lon Chaney on Spider Baby and Pam Greer on all those movies in the Philippines and um, Roger Corman and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, just talking to him and getting all that experience relayed back to me um, was really awesome, but the best thing about it, and I said it in my post in, in memory of him the other day, was that he he respected me, and he always he never denied a moment to tell me that he respected me and that I had earned that respect. And you know, there was an article, and again, this is me tooting my own horn. Whatever there there was an article that he that he had an interview in, uh, maybe twenty sixteen. That was really cool because it actually came out on my birthday that year. And he said he was talking about filmmaking and independent filmmaking because he's been in so many independent films. And the interviewer asked him, you know, what's it like working in independent films? And he's like, well, you know, a lot of the time they don't know what they're doing because they just bought a $2,000 camera and they're just out there running and gunning. And he's like, but sometimes you come across a filmmaker who does know what they're doing. And then he specifically brought me up in that in that interview and it was such a wonderful moment for me because you know i'm like most artists and you guys can probably agree we have our up days and we have our down days and, <laughs> oh yeah and, and it's like you you struggle so much because you want nothing more than to make movies and be passionate and successful and focus all your attention on it but you can't because it doesn't pay the bills and it frustrates you or you get upset because someone steals it from you or 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 hurts you or you know whatever the case may be and so to have someone who everybody looks up to someone who's got 50 plus years in the in the business who's worked with some of the greatest names in the business tell you that that you earned their respect it it was it it meant everything to me and um and those are those tentpole pro moments in my career um 
that that just really you know they reinvigorate you and they they motivate you to keep going and uh you know those are the things that those are the moments i wish i could instill to everybody like you guys because whether it was directed at me specifically or not it's like all of us possess within us that ability to to make it happen you just have to be willing to do the work to make it happen you know and deal with a fair amount of bullshit along the way because you're going to but you roll with the punches and you make the most of it and at the end of the day you hopefully come out with a fucking movie that you are either at the helm of or had a large part of or a small part of but you're proud of it because as long as everybody is the same mentality as you and as I am on all my movies it's not when I say it's my movie it is my movie but it's also your movie and your movie mark can say a chance in hell is his movie as much as I say it's my movie and I'm not going to yell at him for saying that I'm going to let him do whatever he can promote it as much as he wants you know because he had a part in making it what it is and um and high on the hog was that when we were shooting it it was it was a group of people who had never worked together you know there was four or five of us who had worked together once or twice but overall the vast majority was a group of people who had never worked together who came together when when we all thought we were going home on that fifth day we all thought we're going home and hey i get to keep my paycheck but i didn't get to finish the movie and i was disappointed more than anybody because here's my chance to direct sid Haig and robert Zdar and joe estevez and i got to go home now but we we all came together as a family and it's to this day the last 20 days on that film are the best experience of my life in terms of my filmmaking career and that's that spans 15 years at this point um you know so i uh one of my favorite moments was and i've told this story a lot but sid um we were shooting a scene <clears throat> there's a scene where uh sid is introducing the new girl you know he's got all these girls kind of like charles manson but he's not a psychopath like charles manson he's more of a good guy that takes in girls you know it's almost like a halfway house where if he sees a girl who's been abused or is dealing with addiction he'll take them in and um and care for them it's like anti charlie manson yeah yeah he's basically like you can live on my farm just help me with the chore that type of thing and you get to smoke the best weed in america you know and so he's introducing the new girl to all the other girls who are at the chicken coops and they're spreading feed for the chickens and they have this whole scene and it's a lot of fun and it's it's a moment where i wrote a sit hag line that i'm super proud of it's he says he gets frustrated and he says it, it's hotter than a butt cheek sandwich out here i'm going out fishing with my new fishing lure and he walks off screen and you know to, to write a line that sid Haig says and says with pride was was a great moment too because he's the king of catch phrases you know um but so this was the second time we shot this scene because the producer who had walked off set and quit was also an actress in the movie so we had to reshoot the scenes that we'd already done with her in them and so we were reshooting this we were losing light rob's lighting was not working as well as we wanted to to recreate sunlight so everybody was really frustrated and it was kind of one of those days where at the end of the day you just kind of like quit you know you're like all right well we got it in the can but we're not happy and everybody was cleaning up and everybody was talking you know we we're all going to go back to the motel we were staying in and and you know have some beers and stuff and i walked up to sid and i said hey and he goes hey 
And I'm like, you want to go grab a beer? And again, I've told this story a million times, so people have heard it, but whatever. Fuck them if they've heard it in their time. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, it's such a wonderful memory. Um, and so I was like, you want to go grab a beer? And he goes, fuck yeah. So Sid and I and his, the guy who was kind of there to help Sid with whatever he needed, his assistant, the three of us went to this hole-in-the-wall bar in Elizabeth, Illinois, and we sat at this hole-in-the-wall bar and drank cans of bush light <laughs> and told stories to each other and listened to mostly Sid tell stories. And it was, uh, it was a dream come true. You know, it was one of those moments where it was a, a real dream come true for somebody like me. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at the end of that, he, he bought me a 12 pack of bush light cans and I was interested in a girl that was on set. One of the girls that was working on the set. And he said, take these back. Sorry, babe, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't know my fiance at the time. You know, if I knew she existed, it'd be a different story, but, um, you know, I, I, he said, Tony, Here's a 12-pack on me. Take it back. Share some with her. Share some with the rest of the cast and crew. Have a good time tonight. Best of luck. And let's let's you know, let's keep making this movie. And um, and we did, you know, and it was just it was such a great experience overall. You know, he was on set for the first 12 days as an actor, as Big Daddy, but he ended up staying an extra week to be the line producer and essentially help out as like a, a production manager to make sure everybody stayed on schedule and everybody understood their positions. And so again, we had a family and, and the fact that the patriarch was Sid fucking Haig. Um, I'd like to find other people in this world that can say that same thing, you know, and it was just a really great experience. I miss those days. I really do. That's, 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 that's a, an amazing, amazing story. Um, uh, Good luck, guys. <laughs> Good luck asking questions now. <laughs> All right. I got one uh, question for you, and we'll keep it simple. Um, what is the process you go through to uh, get your creature suits built? Um, I know a decent amount about special effects, but that's one thing I, I don't even know where to begin on that notion. So what advice would you, like, give people or me for that matter? So... Well, I'll give you I'll give you two quick examples. The contrast between It's My Party, my first feature, and The Rake, my third feature. And in between is a span of 10 years, I guess. 10 years. So It's My Party. Uh, it was a lot of the Savini students who were my friends working on it, doing the effects work. Um, we molded the actor. We, uh, we, did a, we did a life cast of the face. And then I bought a unitard um, for the body, um, a spandex unitard. We had sculptors sculpt the head on her life cast. Excuse me. And then from that, we made a cowl, which is basically like a hoodie. You know, it's everything but the face. And then we did a appliance. I think it was a multi-piece. It might have been a two-piece. Yeah, it was a two-piece, multi-piece appliance for the face. It was all latex, um, which is kind of a pain in the ass to work with. But at the time, we weren't really utilizing silicone at Savini School um, or gelatin. And gelatin's a pain in the ass anyway. Um, so we did foam latex. The bodysuit, we, uh, we built up with cotton and latex. Very simple, easy. You can do it at home. 
process. Uh, we made nails and cl or claws out of acrylic and just basically I, I would, would mix the acrylic together and then put it on the hand and then you mold it to be kind of the rough shape of a, of a claw and then you take a Dremel and you carve it. Um, and then I had one of the most amazing airbrush artists I've ever met, Eric Molinaris, who was a teacher there at the time. Now he's working on movies. I, he's, I don't know where he's at now, but he's doing a bunch of movies. He airbrushed the entire suit. And, um, and yeah, then we had the actor on set. We put the, the, the unitard on. We put the cowl on. Uh, the creature was wearing a costume because it's a Halloween party. So they're wearing a shirt and pants and shoes because um, they didn't tear through the clothes like a werewolf would, for example. So we were able to use the shirt's collar to hide the edge of the cowl and the top of the of the unitard. And then you put the face multi-piece on. We had, I had made, my dad was a dentist, so I used to go to his office and I would build acrylic teeth appliances. And in this case, I wanted the mouth, I wanted to have an underbite. So I built an acrylic bridge that went over, it attached to her lower teeth and went over her lower lip and sat on the outside of her lip, like on her chin. Hmm. And so, and then the, and then the multi-piece appliance sat on top of that. So it looked like the creature had a bigger mouth than she really did. Um, and then we put in sclera contact lenses that I got from nine millimeter special effects, which is an amazing company. Kevin there is an amazing artist. Um, and I don't think you can buy them in the U.S. anymore, but you can have them shipped to somebody you know in Canada and have them ship them to you. <laughs> easy, I'm serious. It's an easy way to get around it. Um, okay. Piece of advice. Because um, sclera contact lenses, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. You want to do good practical special effects work in a movie, you have to do full, full sclera lens contacts. Because those little piece of shit ones that make your iris a different color, those are not good. They look like contact lenses. And you're not going to convince your audience at all with the makeup with those in them. And that is a big blunder that I see often in independent films. Um, so then now you progress to the rake, which is 2015, again, 10 years later. And I've got a effects team of, I think, eight or nine people, including the two guys, Tom and Reed, who were sculpting the whole body in my basement. Um, what they did was... They bought, again, a, a neoprene suit or something like that, full-body suit. Um, they built stilts, and we, we, didn't, we didn't want to complicate things by having the creature move and having to, to, to green screen out parts of the stilts. So we built the stilts on a base, just like we, we, we just took a plywood board and made a base that was like three by three feet, and we attached these stilts that they made out of two by fours um, at an angle, and then they basically stapled shoes to those or nailed shoes to those, and then the actor stood in those shoes, and he put the full-body creature suit on, which was um, basically this neoprene suit that they sculpted um, foam musculature and skeletal system on this thing, on the suit, and then they glued it to the suit, and then they covered that with latex again, and then that was airbrushed. Um, and then the mask was an animatronic. It was not a robotic animatronic. It was not servos. It was uh, um, uh, just used, it was using the actor's mouth. Freddy, the actor, was inside. And there was a chin cup that was inside the mask, and the jaw was on hinges. So whenever the actor opened his mouth, 
it would cause the mouth of the monster to open as well, even though the mouth was all the way down here, you know, a good six inches in front of the actor's mouth. Um, and that was a fiberglass uh, skeletal core. Um, and he basically wore that like a baseball helmet. Um, and then stretched around that was a foam latex head, you know, a single piece of, of foam latex that Jason Kane, my special effects supervisor, sculpted off of a design that I had, you know, kind of told him I wanted and that he built off of that. Um, and then the, there were two claws, you know, there was a clawed hand and like a barb. That was Rob's idea, you know, to kind of give the creature a rake, so to speak, this big barb that it could hook people with. And um, those were just big gloves that they basically, we, we took life casts of the actor's arms and then sculpted on, you know, life casts of his arms and then created molds of those and poured them out in foam. Um, and that's, that's really how we did it, you know. So there's, and th there's a lot of different ways. It's really every situation is different. You know, okay. um, but the biggest, the biggest advice I can give people when working with special effects is take your time in pre-production, working through your storyboarding, talk to your special effects supervisor about, create a shot sequence with your special effects supervisor. And that's what Jason always liked about working with me is because I was also an effects artist, I knew how effects worked. So when he would say, oh, well, you should shoot it from this angle because it hides this mechanism, or you should shoot it, you know, from three different angles because when you cut them together, it'll have this effect. And I understood what he was talking about and, and sometimes had those ideas in my head before he even brought them to my attention because we both had that prior experience working with special effects. Um, and a lot of people, one, do not, do not understand that special effects, you can't just shoot them 360. You know, you have to work around certain aspects of them. And so you want to listen to your effects supervisor for that reason. And also give your effects team time. Because if you if you make them race through time, both in pre-production as well as while they're on set, it's not going to be as good, you know. And you have to allot enough time. So when your supervisor says, well, we need seven hours, and you say, okay, or your first AD says, well, you got four and a half. No, 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 no. They need seven. If anything, you try and talk them into six, but don't cut it in half because all that's going to do is piss you off when you're in the editing room looking at it and can't fix it. So that's my advice. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sounds great. Thank you. The, um, yeah. Brendan, I know that, that you had uh, uh, one as well. Yeah, so I just wanted to ask you, like, and you have Rob, your go-to cinematographer. You've been working together for quite a few years and yeah, I think you mentioned that he's actually a co-producer along with you on a lot of projects as well. So you probably have a very in-depth working relationship at this point. So I'm just kind of curious what your on-set and pre-production working relationship with your cinematographer is like. Like, I've worked with directors who know, like, exactly what angles they want, the lighting they want, so on and so forth, where it's basically just, I just execute what they want. I've had directors who they have... A shot list and a general idea of the kind of feel they want but the general framing and lighting they leave up to me i have zach who's sort of somewhere in between that and i've also had directors who to put it nicely are so loose that i basically come up with their shot list for them the day of set um so i was kind of curious like what kind of conversations 
take place between you and your cinematographer when you're preparing for a scene? Well, and I, and I can say, I can speak on Rob's behalf and knowing that he has said to me multiple occasions where he's working with another director and they don't know what they want and they haven't prepared with a shot list or discussed their desires with him. So he ends up, for lack of a better term, directing it for them. And, and I know a couple of situations where that specifically happened. And it's unfortunate because the director ends up still getting the credit, you know, yeah. and and a thing, and this is a bit of a tangent, but a thing that I always say is that people, you know, people look at the director and they're like, oh, well, the director gets all the credit. And it's like, well, yeah, the director does get all the credit when the movie's good. But if the movie's bad, the director, <laughs> it's like the captain of the ship, the Titanic's captain. He's not the first one on the lifeboat. He's the one who went down with the fucking ship, you know. <laughs> And, and people don't often remember that there's stress that's involved with that. But all I can say is that a way to help alleviate a degree of that stress is to prepare. You know, you take as much time as you can during development and pre-production. You talk to your, your department heads. And, and your cinematographer is one of the most important department heads, in my opinion, as far as I'm concerned. Because directing, as much as a movie is just as much about audio as it is about visual directing is about visuals you know you, you can sit and i can sit in in with my with my audio mixer and my audio engineer and i can discuss how i want a movie to sound but at the end of the day the compositions of the shots are what's really going to make or break i think a film and so in in my in my i've worked with a handful of different cinematographers and i've been a cinematographer myself as i said and it's my party um and my earlier work rob is a rob is a unique exception to a rule because rob and i are brothers rob and i can fight like brothers but we love like brothers and i will i will eternally be grateful that he want that he introduced himself to me back in 2011 and that we've worked together ever since um, and we're very excited to be looking forward to the future and what we're going to do next. And we've been talking about developing that. And, you know, the way we work together is it's different on each movie. On High in the Hog, we had a couple of meetings because it was our first feature together where we mm -hmm. sat down in his apartment and we talked through our shot list together. And then when we got on set, we worked off the shot list, but there was a lot of audibles. Um, you know, on Skeletons in the Closet, I had a shot list that I gave to him. And he pretty much just kind of worked off of it. But in there's a lot of sequences that I have specific ideas for in my head. And then um, and then the dialogue, I kind of just say, we need to get coverage of the dialogue, so just get coverage. And Rob is good enough about not crossing the line and about coming up with interesting enough shots with composition that it's not just two people, you know, in a two-shot sitting at a table talking and there's no coverage you know so rob is really good about helping me fill that void because i'm not good at coming up with shot composition for dialogue i hate dialogue that's my least favorite part of shooting i like the effects stuff i i, I like action sequences i like the creative stuff but then you look at a situation like the rake where we both came to the table with our own shot lists and then tried to combine them and tried to get as many of each other's shot list shots as we could. And a lot of times, Rob actually beat me out on shots where, you know, <laughs> it, it, like, like, for example, there is, there's two intense steady cam shots in the rake 
Um, the, the biggest one is where Sinead Grimes Beach is running from. She's been in the woods kind of dealing with some bullshit with the rake. And she emerges from the woods and runs across the backyard through this basement door entrance to the house, past a dead body, up the basement stairs, past another dead body, through the house, into the living room, and confronts the monster in the living room. And the whole entire thing is a one-shot with a Steadicam following her. And the Steadicam has to hit its marks to catch each of these dead bodies, to follow up with her, not to miss focus. And so there's a focus puller, you know, there's all this shit. And I wanted her to emerge from the woods from a descending jib shot along the, like a profile edge along the edge of the woods and the yard. And as we're coming down, coasting down, she bursts out of the tree line past the camera, almost startling the audience. And then we cut to the steady cam. But Rob was like, no, we have to stay on the steady cam the entire time. And we don't have enough time to set up the jib and get that shot and light that shot. So I had to concede. And there are moments where Rob conceded and I conceded. And, and I think that that's ultimately the, the end game is a symbiotic relationship between the cinematographer and the director. Each of you needs to understand that the other person is going to bring an insane amount of talent to the table and a lot of great ideas that you may not have. And you have to respect one another's creativity and work together. It's not a dictatorship. It's about a partnership. And that's what all filmmaking is. If you want to work by yourself, be a fucking painter, be a fucking novelist. You know, <laughs> when you're making a movie, you're working with a lot of other people and you have to. You have to take that into consideration, but don't sacrifice your, your dreams and your desires and your wants either. Be firm about certain things, but know how to pick your battles, you know? Um, and, 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 and that's really all I can say. And you might piss people off. I've lost a lot of my film friends over the years because I am very strongly convicted about what I want out of my projects. And I think that rubs people the wrong way sometimes, but at the end of the day, if I'm sitting in the editing room or if I'm answering questions as the director or the representative of the film, because let's be honest, a lot of your films, how many people are promoting the movie at the independent level? It's typically mostly you. You know, you may have an actor or two. You may have an actress. You may have a co-producer. You may have your writer. But it, for the most part, your production designer is not promoting the movie. Your, your, your art director is not out there promoting the movie on social media. You're the one promoting it. So... You have to be strong and firm in what you want because you're going to be the one who's answering for the shit that you don't like when you're sitting in the editing room saying, fuck, why didn't I spend 10 more minutes on that? Or why didn't I convince everybody to do this instead? You know, don't lose sight of the fact that the cinematographer, the director, the editor, they're some of the most important positions on a film and they need to be able to speak their mind and have their free will to do what they want because those are the, the, the points in the movie that, that really cause the movie to evolve from the page to the screen. That's, 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 that's pretty fucking good advice. Yeah. Hey, so, and then Tony, I know you got to go, but it would, I got, I got one last question for you. Cause I think we covered kind of cover the gauntlet um, of directing uh, DP, but but you do, on IMDb, you do have, you know, 14 uh, producer credits. So I wanted the opportunity to talk to you about producing. And, you know, I'll just simply put it to you, you know, what advice do you have 
for the producers on set and, you know, not, not just on set, but also, you know, dealing with the before, you know, the pre-production and then after afterwards as well, you know, you've done this quite a bit, you know, you've done it more than directing ironically enough. Um, so I'm curious about what your perspective is on producing, um, uh, you know, what you like, what you don't like, and then what advice you can give uh, to those people that are out there producing. Well, at the independent level, if you're a director, if you want to be a director, you're going to have to expect that you're going to be producing as well. So you, you just need to put both hats on and understand that that's going to happen. You're going to be thrown into the pit and you're going to have to fight for yourself because producing is not easy and it's not even really necessarily fun. I hate producing, but <laughs> I can agree with that. But, but I don't know the legalities. I, I don't know any of that stuff. But what I'm good at is I'm good at orchestrating a set. I'm good at managing the different departments and, and, and building teams and, and, you know, securing department heads who can manage their teams well so that the delegation of responsibility trickles very smoothly. Um, so I think that that's a good piece of advice is make sure you're putting people in the right places and putting the right people in those places. Don't just put someone in a position because they're your friend or because they're eager. That doesn't mean shit. You know, make sure they have prior uh, experience. Look at their demo reel and see what they've done. Talk to people that they've worked with, you know. But hiring a good team around you is essential. Um, again, you can never have enough pre-production time. Um, I think that my two strong suits are locations and casting. So as a producer, you know, put your director and producer hat on at the same time and go out and, and surf backstage.com and, you know, castingcall.com and find talent and don't be afraid to to postpone production if you're not happy with your cast you know um when you go through your auditions and you have people that you're okay with you know but not thrilled with um good call babe i love her she's great she's got good advice um <laughs> you know in terms of locations call real estate agents in the area and say this is what i'm looking for can you help me find it you know, you'd be surprised how many people outside of Los Angeles, California are eager to work on a movie, even if it's just to get a special thanks credit. That's how I found majority of my locations, including the factory for a chance in hell. Um, you know, uh, those are big things. Take time to get a good art department together and to work with your art department and your director, or if you're the director and producer, to help orchestrate the production department, the production design department. Because your art department is gonna make or break the indie feel of your movie. You know, they say sound is a big deal, it is. They say camera quality is a big deal and lighting, it is. Everything's a big deal on a movie. But I'll tell you what, I, I hate nothing more watching an independent movie, and I've seen a shit ton of independent movies. Nothing sucks more watching an independent movie than watching an independent movie that takes place in a horror fan's living room of his apartment or her apartment where there's horror posters on the wall. The walls are painted white. It's, you know, no, no offense. Guys, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it's old furniture. It's old for, I mean, I'm describing your living room and I apologize because I'm not insulting your living room. That, no, that was not like, my living room, it's their living room. <laughs> your living room is literally my living room until I moved in with my fiance three months ago and she made me have taste, you know? So that, <laughs> this is trust, taste. I'll never give up on that. Bad taste no, no, is still no, no, no. Literally, literally, 
let me just put it this way. I had that Night of the Creeps poster hanging up in my living room a few months ago. So we are on the same wavelength, my friends. All I'm saying, <laughs> I've seen so many independent horror films that take place in your living room. And it's like, you didn't put any effort in there. You need to put effort into designing the movie around how you want it to look. You know, think about color coordinating your wardrobe to your location. There is a lot of really awesomeness that comes out of doing shit like that. You know, and people, it's a lot easier than it sounds. And people just never think about it because they're too busy focusing on, well, I got to make sure the camera's great. I got to make sure I got good lights. I got to make sure that the boom operator knows what the fuck he's doing. Yeah, those are important things. But as a producer, it is important. It is your job to wear every hat and to delegate responsibility. And if you forget about certain aspects of your production, like production design, which a lot of independent producers do, your movie's going to suffer. And it's not that hard to have good production design. It just takes a little extra time and finding a good person who's good at interior design. And when I talk about forgetting things, neglecting things, this is what Meredith brought up, my fiance brought up to me. She's lovely. A big, big thing. My number one thing that I'm going to say, you cannot rely on handshake agreements. I don't care if they're your best friend or somebody you just met yesterday coming out of the fucking subway. You cannot rely on handshake agreements. And if I were you, I highly recommend if you plan to be a lifelong filmmaker or at least have a decade's worth of a career, such as I've had 15 years at this point, Invest a little bit of money in getting a lawyer to put together a handful of template contracts for you. A location agreement, a deal memo for actors, a certificate of authorship for your writer, um, a, a deal memo for any other major crew members, a general waiver for all the other crew members and cast members, similar to what I had on A Chance in Hell. Um, you know, because a background extra, you can get them if you want to be thorough to sign a fucking seven page deal memo where they're not getting paid anything. But at the same time, you could get them to sign a one and a half page waiver that every other PA and, and, and extra signs. And then you're not having to have, you know, 50 contracts, you know, but these are things that you have to, you have to have that shit taken care of because if you do not, your movie will be stolen. Your movie will be meddled with. You will lose control of your creative, your creativity on it. You will lose final cut. Um, you will lose ownership over it. You will lose friendships over it. You know, and, and this is stuff that I've had to learn the hard way. And it sucks because it's like when you want to trust the people that you've worked with, you know, that you work with, but you never know what tomorrow brings. And you can't go into a situation where, you know, what if your movie becomes a million dollar success? Terrifier is a great example. Even though I'm not a big fan of that movie, that is a great example of an independent movie that might have had a hundred, $200,000 budget, and it's on Netflix, and everybody loves it. You go to a horror convention, and how many people do you see walking around with a Terrifier t-shirt on? That movie blew up, and, and that director and that producer or producers now have to contend with the fact that if they didn't have all their ducks in a row legally... Now they're going to have everybody coming out of the woodwork saying, well, holy shit. Well, you just raised $200,000 on Kickstarter for the sequel. You know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but they 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 put up a Kickstarter and Indiegogo for $50,000 because they wanted to do some extreme special effects makeup for one scene. 
they raised $200,000. Okay, that's four times their Kickstarter goal. That's a fucking dream come true for people like the four of us, okay? So now you're going to have every motherfucker coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, I'm going to have Mark Conway coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, Tony, I was in a chance and held a short film. Now you're doing the $3 million feature starring Tom Hardy, which at one point in time my producers in LA wanted to do with a chance in hell. And Mark Conway is going to come to me and say, well, I, I deserve a piece of that, you know? And he has every right to because if he didn't sign a contract, he has the right to sue me if he wants to go through the litigation, which is a pain in the ass in and of itself, and most people don't pursue. But ultimately, spend the money and the time to do it. Get those, get those template contracts. Get, get a handful of filmmakers together. There's three of you sitting there right now. If you guys each went in on $5,000 worth of contracts from, a, from a, a reputable lawyer, which I will get you one if you want one, and you can write up template contracts that then all you guys have to do is change the date, change the name of the project, change the name of the person who's signing the contract with you, and you've got a contract for all of your productions from here on out. And it's better than not having one at all, you know? And, and make sure everyone says that the person that you're working with is a work for hire. They have to be a work for hire because that means that they are working on your movie as a work for hire, they do not own any control over creativity on it or anything like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you don't want them to hold your project hostage, plain and simple. So do yourself a favor. Don't let yourself get stuck in situations that I've been stuck in at this point because it sucks, you know? Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's my biggest piece of advice is just you, you can go anywhere online and look at a budget for a film you know, a, a general film budget. You look at your above the line costs and your below the line costs. And that's going to contribute, that's going to show attributes for each department where you're putting your money. That also can show you a template of where you need to be focusing your attention, you know? So that way you're, you're not looking at a budget because you're doing an independent movie for $5,000. So why would you write up a budget? You're just going to spend the money where you need to spend it. I get that. That's what I did with It's My Party. I didn't have a fucking budget written out. I didn't have a line producer. You know, I didn't even know what a line producer was at the time. The line producer credit on that movie for my buddy Steve Weimer, what, he was more a producer. No, he was actually the production designer was his credit, but he wasn't a production designer at all. He, he was like the boom operator and a producer. You know, bottom line is, is you can look at that and you can say, okay, production design, art department, you know, hard drives, you know, fucking editorial staff, uh, you know, marketing and P&A, you know, all these things that when you're putting together the movie, you're not thinking about how am I going to advertise and market this movie? You know, that can cost 20 grand, 50 grand, a million dollars in and of itself, because that's how you get it out there. That's how people find out about it. And that's how it becomes popular, you know? So I don't know, just bottom line you can call me and ask me a question anytime but that's a lot of advice that i think you can run with and i think it'll do you a lot of good and i hope you appreciate oh, yeah. it yeah no absolutely that, that that actually that's a huge thing i mean like i said we're really big on education and we've and we've got we brought up uh we actually devoted an entire uh section of our of, of our podcast towards education towards other filmmakers so um these are topics that we brought up and 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 put into principle you know into actual activity so no i really appreciate it. it's nice to hear 
um, to hear from somebody else saying, hey, you know, like this is all important opposed to us just talking to ourselves about how it's important. It's yeah. nice to hear it from somebody else, especially somebody else who's dealt with even bigger budgets and bigger projects and bigger things to know, you know, um, uh, that we're moving in the right direction and on track. So I appreciate that. Um, from our perspective of, uh, you know, being from Midwest horror. I really appreciate that, Tony. So, um, and, 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 and I wish that I, just to, to finalize it, like I wish that I have progressed further in my career by this point so that I could instill even more advice from the higher echelon. Because as far as I'm concerned, there's a glass ceiling. And it's like, unless you have that nepotism or you make a project that breaks through to one of the bigger festivals or that a producer or studio sees and likes, it's hard for people even like me in the position that I and my, my film family are in where we're making movies for a couple hundred thousand dollars or a half a million dollars or whatever. And that's great. That's a lot of money to work with, but ultimately that's not getting us up to that million, million five, $3 million level where you're working with legitimate names that you recognize and you're, you're dealing with bigger locations and larger scope projects and a lot more union people on set and stuff like that. And, and so I wish that I could instill a, in, information about those aspects because I don't even know that stuff. And I hate it because if I did know that stuff, I'd feel a lot more comfortable moving into my next production. But I feel like there's, an, there's a degree of incompetence on my part, even though I've got four features as a producer under my belt and a handful of shorts as well as world of death, which is a web series that has over 400 short films in it. And I still don't know half of the business of producing. Um, so, you know, just all I can say is always, always be open to learn and, and just always stay motivated. Never lose your, never lose your motivation because if this is your dream, why would you stop living your dream? You know, I mean, you can have writer's block. You can have moments where you focus on other shit in your life. There's nothing wrong with taking a break, but don't give up. Don't ever give up. And don't let other people make you give up. Don't let the actions and, and the words and the, and, and the things that other people say and do cause you to give up. If anything, use it as, as, as motivation to work harder, um, you know, because it's, it's a rough business. And I know you guys know that it's not like you're newbies to it, but it's, you are younger than I am, so I can at least say that I've got a few years on you, and <laughs> it is a fucking business. No, I, I, I hear you. No, no, I hear you, Tony. I really do, man. That's, I mean, you know what, and that's, and that's going to help. But you know what, though, and and as they always say, it's it's to be continued. So I hope this is not the this this is not a one and done. There will be other interviews and other times where we can all get together and chat again. And, you know, and hopefully by that time you, you, you'll already be through the glass ceiling. So we'll have something even more to talk about. You, you have a whole new, whole new uh, you know, crop of stories to tell and a whole new, uh, you know, perspective about what it's, uh, you know, what it's like on the other side of that glass ceiling. So, but, um, but I know you got to go. I know you got to get going. But, um, but we really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much, man, for taking the time um, to actually jump on. Um, and, and talk with us. Um, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I know I can speak for the rest of my guys and myself. We definitely want to get you on at another time. Um, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll swing by the suburbs and we'll, we'll do it in, uh, you know, in your basement, um, uh, you know, uh, with the, your posters in the background. Um, so, so, you know, thank you so much, Tony. I appreciate it, man. Um, uh, any, any, uh, Zach, any final thoughts? 
a lot of great stories, a lot of great advice. Thank you for being on. It was great to hear somebody who's shared similar experiences, especially from a directing front front. And, um, you know, just repeating a lot of things we've told our audiences in our uh, pr past podcast. Like this was a great interview. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing all your stories. This was phenomenal. And yeah. Yeah. Squirrels. Um, uh, Brandon. Um, what Zach said. Uh, <laughs> thank you for being here. Um, and I already knew that this was going to be a very packed interview, um, but all the stories you told, um, there was either something passionate in there or something educational. Um, yeah, just thank you for being here. Yeah, and just one more thing. Your stories do just put the nail in the coffin for horror film sets are just the most entertaining film sets to be on. Because everybody's just there to be happy and have a good time and do a whole bunch of Fun, nasty, cool graphic shit that's just awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. all fun games until it's four in the morning and your your special effects aren't working and you're on your thirtieth take, like I said, then it's not fun. But but there's always a silver lining and, and yeah, it is it again, I wouldn't have been doing it for fifteen years and I've I've spent a lot of time and a lot of money and I've I've sacrificed a lot of personal stuff and a lot of relationships because of it. Um I wouldn't do all that if, it, if there wasn't some reward out of it. Um, but uh, just kind of final note, um, you can go to scotchworthy.com. That's like a bottle of scotch worthy, like we are not worthy. Scotchworthy.com, one word. Um, there's a store there where you can pick up copies of all my movies. You can see Skeletons in the Closet and The Rake for free if you have Amazon Prime. You can rent High on the Hog on Amazon if you want. They're all on iTunes, I would imagine. Um, I think Skeletons is on Tubi. Um, the Rake is on Comcast, probably AT&T. Um, but, you know, if you want to support an independent filmmaker, go to the website, pick up a physical copy, I'll autograph it for you. You want me to kiss it with some lipstick? I'll borrow some from my fiance and I'll fucking do that. I don't <laughs> but again, scotchworthy.com and, and feel free to find me on social media. I'm on Facebook as Tony Wash. Scotchworthy Productions is on there. Skeletons in the Closet's on there. And I'm on Instagram as Scotchworthy. And connect with me. I'm, I'm always happy to talk filmmaking. I'm always happy to bullshit horror. I'd love to get on other podcasts and promote our stuff. And I'm always happy to help with advice, you know, and work on stuff. I want somebody to fucking hire me to direct their next movie or to produce their next movie. Where are all the people that have to hire me? So, you know, check me out. Find me. Let's do it. Fair enough. Tony. Here's to another 10 years, man. Um, uh, you know, I hope we're still, you know, we're still working and still uh, grinding away 10 years later. So you have a good evening, sir. Um, uh, and, and we'll uh, and we'll talk soon, man. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care, man. Thanks. Right. Hey, that was a great interview. I appreciate it. Of course, uh, please like, share, and subscribe. Tell all your brothers, sisters, and uncles, uh, best friends all about our channel. Brandon, where, where can they find us? YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all at Midwest Horror Network. And were we finally all at Midwest Horror Network? Yes. Thank God. All right, everybody. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon.